text for this morning's sermon is Luke 18, verses 24 through 30, turning back to the account of Jesus' interaction with the rich ruler in Luke 18, focusing on the end of that exchange here in verses 24 through 30. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, uh, I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to humble ourselves under your word. Father, I pray that uh, you would do the work that only you can do in the hearts of both the believers here and those who are not yet converted. Father, I pray that you would do your work through this gospel Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What makes you different than someone else? Think of your neighbor. Does your neighbor know Christ? If you claim to be a believer, if you're claiming Christ... And yet your neighbor could care less about Christ. What makes you different? Have you ever shook your head and thought, I can't believe they live that way. I can't believe they do the things they do. I can't believe they believe the lies they believe. My question for you is, what makes you different? How were you so lucky to be a smart one, to be a right one, to see the truth of God? You see, it was about 11, 12 years ago when the truth I'm going to preach this morning dawned on me in a way I had never seen before. In a way that seemed really controversial to my self-will and my high view of man and my low view of God. But it changed the way I looked at my neighbor across the street that I tried to witness to, that shut me down, that I tried to hand a book to and he'd say, I don't want to read that garbage. 
The man who would point at his dog and say, that dog has as much value as any person. The man who said, my brother died at war young, and you want to tell me about God? You see, it was really easy to go back into my yard and look over there and say, what a stubborn fool. Who won't look at truth, who has a hard heart. And then God broke into my heart through texts like the one we're going to look at this morning and gave me a whole different perspective on life, on my salvation. You know, we hear things all the time like this. Where there's a will, there's a way. Or we're talking about renovating the church. Well, anything's possible if you have enough money. Are those true statements? Where there's a will, there's a way. (laughs) Anything's possible if you have enough money. Well, it's not true. We realized from Christ last week when He was talking to the rich young ruler. His money could not purchase him the kingdom of God. In fact, it was his money that kept him from receiving the greatest gift. Jesus offered him eternal treasure. Come follow me. He offered him himself an eternal treasure, and yet it was his pride and his money that kept him from following Christ. So as we look at this text, we're basically going to look at this statement. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he tells this illustration that is comical. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter. How difficult. It's easier that a camel goes through the eye of a needle. And then finally, the truth hits the disciples and they ask the right question when they say, then who can be saved? And then Jesus tells them the straight facts. With man, this is impossible. That's the truth we're going to dive into. We're going to say, what, is it, what does Christ mean when He says it's impossible for man to enter the kingdom of heaven, to be saved? But it's possible with God. The drive of this message is this, throw yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ, forsaking all other hopes. That's the charge to leave with. That last part's hard, forsaking all other hopes. We don't like throwing ourselves totally upon the mercy of God. We often want His mercy, but want to hang on to other hopes. 
And then look at these two main truths. Man is by nature sinful and spiritually dead. Man needs God to give him spiritual life. So if we're to ask the question, why is it impossible with man? We would need to go back to Genesis chapter 2 when Jesus told Adam that for in the day that you eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you will surely die. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then we see them eating in Genesis 3. And what happens is, in verse 7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. You want to know why? Because they died spiritually. They were exposed before God. Their relationship with God was now broken because of sin. And so shame filled their life. Death, spiritual death, filled them immediately. And in that spiritual death, they immediately try to fix the problem in their own pride as they make for themselves clothing out of fig leaves. I can fix this. I can do this. But then, in verse 21 of Genesis 3, we read that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And a few verses earlier, he told them that from the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed. You're not going to fix your problem. God needs to fix the problem. And then in verse 24, we read, He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed cherubim and a flaming sword and turned, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why did He do that? Because man is separated from God. He's spiritually dead. He can't be in the presence of God. So they're driven out of the garden. Not without hope. God has just clothed them. There's a promise given in verse 16 that the deceiver, the serpent's head, will be crushed, but they are spiritually dead and separated from God. And the process of dying began that day, even though they didn't die physically that day. What is physical death? When your soul leaves your body, there's separation from your soul and your body. They're separated. Death divides. Spiritual death is when we're separated from God. They died that day spiritually. Their relationship with God was broken. We're answering the question, why is it impossible with man to be saved? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Who are we? Here's what 
God tells us through the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's speaking to believers and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. So the devil is playing the music. He's setting the course for the way of the world. The course of this world is against you and you followed it. You danced to that song. The devil was playing the song. But your problem isn't just outside you. For then it says, In verse 3, among whom we all months lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. (laughs) So there's evil without and there's evil within. And then here we get this clear statement. And you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Which means we're under the judgment of God. That's what mankind has to look forward to. So we learn from those first three verses that we were dead, not sick, but dead in our trespasses and sins. If we were sick, God might say, come on, come on, stand up, use your strength, help, I'll give you some medicine. But that's not how mankind was described. We were dead. We were by nature children of wrath. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because that's your nature. But then what do we see? What, what, what hope is there? Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? What's the hope of man? Look at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God. Isn't that what Jesus was trying to get through to his disciples? It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. But God, being rich in mercy, we should ask the question, how rich? We're going to find out in a moment. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. How rich in mercy is he? When Sam is a scumbag, a rebel of God, prideful, believing I can fix it myself, even then, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. Who did that? But God made us alive together with Christ. And that's what we need. He, uh, what has Paul just taught? He's taught that we're dead. We were by nature children of wrath. We needed a resurrection. Paul 
But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you want a glimpse into your future, verse 7 is it for the Christian. So that in the coming ages, that's eternal ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. What are immeasurable riches of His grace? Your mind can't comprehend it. And in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you realize God saved you in a way so that you could not boast? that God would get all the glory. And when he says, and this is not your own doing, we should ask the question, what is this referring to? And when you look at the structure of this sentence, this refers to, goes back and grabs both the grace and the faith. In verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this... When you look at the Greek, grabs both of them. Now, is there responsibility for the sinner to repent and trust in Christ? Yes! You must believe, but the question is, why do the ones who believe, believe? Who's going to believe? Well, we read here, that even our faith is a gift of God. It's not our own doing, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So who am I compared to my neighbor? Who am I but an object of God's mercy and God's grace? Does this surprise you that faith is even the gift of God? In 2 Timothy 2.24 or 25, he says, I'll begin in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. So repentance that sees God's truth is true is granted by God, which is comforting to me, the preacher. Because I preach the foolishness of the gospel in the world's eyes, but God's the one that turns the lights on. That's not my job, and that's not your job, and it should take the pressure away when you think about being faithful and sharing the gospel to others. This is His work because He deserves the glory. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Who begins the good work? In the sinner? God does. God doesn't pick the good ones. There is no good ones. Philippians 1.29 he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So here Paul's teaching that 
To believe in Christ is granted to us from God. And it must be because we are spiritually dead. You see, we don't get the new birth because we believe. We believe because we're given the new birth. And that's why he says in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, here's how he ends it. After he says, it's not a result of work so that no one may may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. When someone sees a Christian and someone says, "Tell, tell me about your testimony, well, I figured this out and I read this book and I did this and I did that and finally I realized I was, I, I was such a fool. And no, that's not the testimony of Scripture. The, uh, if you're believing in Christ, a supernatural miracle has been done that you could never do for yourself. Do you realize that? A miracle that is greater than the miracle of creation. God created the world out of nothing, and nothing, I guess, is morally neutral. But when God saved you, He took a rebel, someone that has a nature contrary to God, and He gave them spiritual life. And it's so easy for us to take this for granted. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Are we supposed to work? Yes. Is there commands for believers? Yes. Why does God command believers? Because you're alive now. Because you can follow God. You can follow Christ. Because you have the Holy Spirit and your eyes have been opened to the words of life. But can you do something? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God was the question from the rich young ruler. And God, or in Christ, got the disciples to the right question. Who then can be saved? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Beginning in verse 20. We're still asking the question, who are we? Why is it impossible for us to save ourselves? 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where's the one with this ultimate intellect? You know, where, where's Ben Shapiro, the one that can debate people and make them look like fools? The one who's gifted intellectually? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. <laughs> so the people that get saved aren't going to get saved because they're so brilliant. That's not why. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So who will believe? Let's ask that question. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But there's a third category of people. But to those who are smarter? No. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. So this calling he's talking about is not the general call of the gospel, where we're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. That's a general call. He's talking about the type of calling that is effectual. The call itself comes with life in it. But to those who are called, they look at Christ and they don't see a fool and they don't see weakness. They see wisdom and they see power and the difference was in the call. That's what distinguished them. And then he says this in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. You hear that? That's sovereignty in salvation. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. You hear that? To bring to nothing the things that are so that there's a purpose to your salvation beyond you. You realize that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God designed salvation in such a way that one man can't stand in his yard and look at his neighbor and say, what a fool. Why can't he be smart like me? But instead, God designed salvation in such a way that if I'm trusting in Christ, Paul just said, well, he picked the fools. He picked the weak ones because he has a purpose to show his glory to the world and to the nations and to humble man so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look at verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. You see what He's drilling into their heads? This is an arrogant 1 Corinthian church that's saying, who's better, Paul, Apollos, Peter, Who's right? Who's great? Who's, who's the knowers? Who knows that you don't have to eat food sacrificed to idols? It's an arrogant, prideful church, and he's beginning with teaching them and reminding them how they got to the point that they trusted in Christ. And so then he says, verse 31 or verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those are all the things we need. So that as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech. You would think that's how you'd convince people. You sound smarter. You have the best jokes. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you say, I'm saved because I listened to the smartest teacher. (laughs) Paul said, the reason why I didn't try to sound like the smartest teacher and I just taught what I knew most people would reject is because if they receive the message because I'm the best orator in town, their faith is going to rest on my arguments. But he proclaimed Christ and Christ crucified And the person that believes that, it's a demonstration of supernatural miracle that has happened in the heart of men because only weird people see a man hanging on a cross, dying as a criminal, as power and wisdom. And then he says in verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of the age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for had they, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart is it, Heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. God revealed it to us. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the Spirit's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And here's the key, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But I thought there's free will. Well, here's what the Bible teaches is your freedom of your will is limited to your nature. Someone says to you, well, I got free will. And I say, all right, you see that deer over there? Become a lion right now. Chase that deer down. Kill it and drag it back to me. Well, you're being silly. Well, yeah, so you're saying your freedom is limited to your nature. And Paul has just taught that we're by nature spiritually dead. So your freedom lies within your sinful nature. And you can choose what sins you want to do, but what you can't choose is to believe spiritual truth. 
Because the spiritually dead don't accept spiritual truth. In Galatians 3, Paul says the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other. They're against each other. They don't ever line up. They're always against each other, which means unless there's a spiritual resurrection, there will never be spiritual faith that clings to Christ. We need to be taught by God. Do you remember when in Matthew 16, when Peter, finally someone other than a demon, confesses Jesus as the Christ. It's Peter. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? This is Matthew 16. 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Finally, a man has said it. Finally, someone got it right. So what's Jesus going to do? High five him. Woohoo, Peter, you're so smart. You're better than the rest. What, is, what does he say? He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, you are blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So he reminded him of his old name, <laughs> who he was. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So rather than become proud, you need to know that my father opened your eyes to that truth. Peter. And then if we're going to go to John chapter 1 verse 11 and he came to his own and his own people did not accept him or receive him but to all who received him and we should ask the question wait a minute who received him? But to all who received him who believed in his name he became, or he gave the power to become children of God. And some of them might say, see, there it is. The person who receives him becomes a child of God. But then the sentence goes on. Who were born not of blood. So you, so you don't become a child of God by being born into a Jew or into a believing family. So it's not through blood. He says, not, or he says, or of the will of the flesh. What? <laughs> There's the human choice, right? There's the human decision. You weren't born again that way. Or of the will of man, but of God. So the ones who receive him have been born of God. I'll never forget in my first Greek class, when we were going through First uh, John, seeing First John five one, uh, and it says in the ESV, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And I thought, well, there it is. Anyone believe who believes in Christ has been born of God already. But then you read the NASB or the or like the NIV, it says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And I thought, well, which one is it? Do you believe and then become born of God? Or if I'm believing, have I already been born of God? And one of the beauties of the Greek language is it's 
more precise than the English language. And what you see is that verb, uh, born of God, is from the word genao. It's gegenatatai, which is in the perfect tense. And here's what the perfect tense means. The verb tense used by the writer to describe a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which has produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. So you see the problem that the interpreters have? It's in the perfect tense, which means that those who believe have been born of God and are believing in God now. So the English and translators have to make a choice. Are we going to emphasize the has been or the is? And the, question, the answer is it's both. First John is this book of how do you know that you know him? Are you trusting in Christ? If you're trusting in Christ, you have already been born of God in the past and you are believing now in the present. And it was so exciting to see that and to say, okay, I'm not crazy. This, contra- this supposed controversy over this truth that God must act, God must give life before we can accomplish any spiritual life like faith. It was there in a verse. And then I thought of Nicodemus, John 3. <laughs> Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, pointing back to Ezekiel 36, uh, beginning like verse 22, uh, he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in that text, he says, I will take you from the nations. I will uh, take out your heart of stone and put a heart of sto- uh, flesh in into you. I'll give you the Spirit. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. It's God saying, I, I, I will do this. And Jesus is saying, unless you're born of water and Spirit, which is pointing back to that, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is Nicodemus, one of the good ones, one of the smart ones, one of the teachers. And so his response is what you would expect. Jesus Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. So can the spiritually dead person produce spiritual life? No. The spirit needs to do that. And he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Over and over and over again. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. You think Jesus is going to fail? God the Father's given Jesus people. All those whom he given, he's given to him will come to him. Jesus won't lose 
any of them. He says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Is it true you must repent and believe to become a Christian? Yes, but you won't unless the Spirit of God opens your eyes to the beauty of the gospel, convicts you of sin, brings you to the point of total helplessness. What has Jesus been teaching this whole time? People like the widow who has no power in and of herself, but has to plead for justice, plead for help, plead for help. And then you have the tax collector who has nothing to offer before God except say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then you have the infants, the little babies and the little children. And Jesus says, if you try to enter the kingdom of God, not like a child, you won't enter. So what's the big deal? The big deal is you will not throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You will not cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, if you don't know who you are. And you don't realize that God doesn't owe you salvation. That's why it's called mercy. That's why it's called grace. And all this sinner can do is to throw himself upon the mercy of Christ and say, that's my only hope. God, give me this spiritual life. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. I want to close with Titus 3. It's just another way of saying this, these same things. For we ourselves, this, these are believers, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness, so we have another but at verse 4, just like in Ephesians 2, here's the difference. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's the new birth, and the renewal of the Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we, being justified by His grace, might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So my prayer And what Jesus was teaching his disciples is, is you have to lose. You need to be humbled to the point of utter desperation. Realizing there is no hope in man. You realize their whole system just crumbled in front of them. Jesus just flipped the world upside down on their thinking. If the rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? The, the, the rich man was obviously, in their mind, blessed by God. And by the grace of God, they got to the right question. Their only hope is the mercy of God. And so we're proud in the Lord that the name of this church is Sovereign Grace Church. What does that mean? That means... That we didn't earn the grace. The grace came from God that He would be glorified. We're a big God church. We should be the people that say, 
Apart from me, I would be just like my neighbor. We should be the most humble people in the town, realizing that anything we are, we are by the grace of God. Father, I pray that you would give us this humility that comes through clinging to Christ by grace. Father, we're so often proud. We so often want to compare and put ourselves in a good category. Lord, save us from that. Remind us of the gospel. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.